we are really glad that you're joining us uh, live here or on the internet live or on the internet later. Uh, either way, any of those ways, we're delighted. There are some library lectures that we have where we bring in lecturers for a variety of different reasons. And so uh, we may have a lecture that David Cape says, you know, I, I, I want to bring this fella in or this gal in. I want to have this lecture. I think it's going to be real useful. Or some of you write and say, hey, could you get so-and-so in perhaps? Or uh, Pastor David Fleming might say, or Pastor Jarrett Stevens, or, or any number of people might say. But occasionally, we have a lecture that I want where I say, I would really like to have this lecturer come in. And uh, I, I don't mean to say that nobody else wanted it as well. I don't mean that at all. But this was one that came out of uh, some of my personal study. And it was one where uh, I thought, this woman has brilliant ideas. She seems very articulate. She seems very thoughtful. And you know, maybe uh, uh, she can give a good lecture. So I get on YouTube and I start watching and she's got good lectures. And so I thought, uh, okay, maybe she's a nice person. So uh, me and, and several others were going over to Oxford to, to work on some of the stuff we've got over there. And I emailed her. Uh, through a mutual friend, I think is how I first got to her. And she was kind enough to answer the email. Good thought, you know, I mean, that's a good sign. And uh, so I said, you know, we're going to be over there. Any chance you might join us for tea? It sounded pretty British. I was pretty proud of myself. And uh, uh, she was sure I I, I could uh, carve out time in my schedule to do that. And so we went and met with her, and she is as delightful a person as she is a remarkable speaker. And Charles Mickey had her in Lubbock. She did five events in Lubbock on Thursday, which frankly is brutal. She did our panel on Friday. She did her lecture last night. She leaves in a couple of hours for England, but has agreed to stay through class at least so that I could... uh, interview her for you. And I'm really excited. So instead of introducing her, I'll ask her questions about herself up here, but would you join me in welcoming Dr. Sharon Dierichs. And we're just right over there. Absolutely. So I'm really excited for you to get to know Sharon, and I have kind of divided this interview up into three sections. First is some background information. Second are some of the ideas that she talked about last night to frame the third and final area, which were some things we didn't have time to cover last night. So with that, Sharon, tell them a little about you. Where are you from? Yeah, thank you, Mark. And thanks. it's a pleasure to be here and um, to, to spend time with y'all. Just, you know, <laughs> just to... Uh, throw that in there. Um, So I live in Oxford. I've lived there for the last 18 years with my fantastic husband, Conrad. Uh, We've been married for 21 years. Um, And uh, I have two children in their teenage years, Abby, who is 15, and Ethan, who is 13. 
Um, and so, yeah, we live, we live in Oxford. I grew up in Durham. Uh, perhaps some of you have been to Durham. I know that uh, one of our other scholars uh, studied there. Um, and, um, yeah. And so Durham's up north? It's in the northeast of England. It's a beautiful city that if you, uh, many, some of you probably have traveled to the UK, you might start in London, but you could take the train north. Uh, and, and if you head up to Edinburgh, you go through Durham. Uh, and it's got a 900-year-old cathedral, a very beautiful Norman cathedral. Uh, it's where St. Cuthbert is buried. There's a, a fantastic Celtic history of Christianity about how the gospel was brought to the UK from, from, um, from Ireland um, as well as from the south uh, through Roman Christianity. And so it's a wonderful part of the world. That's fantastic. And then you got to go to Lubbock, Texas uh, on Thursday. I did. So you've pretty much seen everything now. I have seen everything, yes. Is it true what they say that Durham is is like the Lubbock, Texas of England? (laughs) I haven't heard that, but... Yeah, yeah, I've not heard that. Can we uh, mic up just a little bit on hers? Uh, It's probably my hearing, but I listened to too much rock music as a kid. (laughs) But um, just let me say what what a privilege to, you know, take just to be able to visit even somewhere like Lubbock, you know, and to to share um, share with with people and to, you know, to speak to to people who may not necessarily know the person of Jesus Christ and in, in the you know in the chapel service in the morning there are some students who would call themselves Christians and there are others who wouldn't but they get chapel points. And so what a great opportunity to, to share the gospel, which is more needed than ever in this day and age. Well, and I want to go there, um, but I found it interesting, your choice of words, even a place like Lubbock. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Especially a yes, place like Yes, there Lubbock. you go. So uh, um, did you grow up in a Christian home? Uh, I didn't. I grew up in a very loving home, uh, a very kind of secure and stable home, Um, but one in which I guess it was just kind of religiously neutral. There wasn't really anything spoken about religious belief at all. Uh, I I think I maybe went to Sunday school at the local Anglican church a handful of times. I think I was a bit kind of bit naughty um, in the Sunday school classes as a child. but uh, I really actually didn't know all that much about Jesus, uh, who he was, what he came to do, until really I went to university. Although before that, uh, I, went, I started to meet some people that went to a youth group in Durham. Uh, so I used to go along to this youth group on a Friday night. But for me, it was kind of ticking a box. I was thinking, oh, look at me. I'm such a well-rounded person. I'm, you know, I'm st- into the sciences and I'm you know, doing well at school. And now I've got this religious box that I can tick because I'm going to this youth group on a Friday night. But of course, that's not really what it's about. And I discover that later. So you do the British equivalent of what we call graduation from high school. And you go to university. Yes. Um, where did you go to university? I went to Bristol in the southwest. So um, it's about five hours by train from, from Durham. So quite far away in British terms. So um, you yeah. go to Bristol. And yeah. what do you get your degree in? 
I did biochemistry, so a Bachelor of Science, uh, honours degree in biochemistry. So, and that involved studying chemistry, physiology, um, molecular biology, um, and obviously bi- biochemistry. And it was a wonderful time to be in biochemistry. The Human Genome Project was still ongoing. Uh, I think they expected to take a lot longer than it did at that point. Um, but it was a very exciting time to, to be studying biochemistry. And so um, you did your degree from Bristol in biochemistry. Yeah. Where did you go next? Well... Oh, wait, um, time out. Time out. Did you meet the Lord there? Get, get us, give us the conversion yes. experience. Can we... So I, um, as, a, as an A-level student, I mean, I knew for, um, from a fairly early age that I loved the sciences, and I decided to do a PhD in my teenage years. And um, I was also a bit of a workaholic, tending to slightly overdo it on uh, too many hours at a desk and so on. My A-level biology teacher, A-levels were what you studied in high school to get you into university, handed me this book by this guy called Richard Dawkins called The Selfish Gene. And so I read that in the late 80s about how we are essentially gene machines and, you know, putting forward this very materialistic view of human beings and the purpose of life. And I just kind of absorbed that. I didn't decide consciously that that I was going to become an agnostic or an atheist, but I somehow arrived at university in that position. And I had somehow uh, bought into the view that science and God were in conflict, that you couldn't, choo- you couldn't hold both together, you had to choose between them. And so, interestingly, in the very first week at university, there was this event called Gorilla Christian, which was nothing to do with barbecuing, um, <laughs> although they did used to grill Christians in the ancient world, but they don't anymore. Well, maybe they do, but they don't here at the moment, so... Um, I listened to the question. It was four Christians in a row. You could ask any question. And I listened to their questions uh, and the way they were being answered. And about halfway through this evening, I put my hand up and I asked my question. I said, surely you can't believe in God and be a credible scientist at the same time. And I was given the answer that, yes, you can. Um, essentially what they said was asking someone to choose between science and God is a bit like asking someone to choose between the programming languages and processes underlying Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg as the reasons for the existence of Facebook. And of course, you think about that for one millisecond and realize you don't need to choose between those two things. So for me, I'd never heard anything like that before. It opened up a whole horizon for me of asking more questions and grilling more Christians, which I did over the course of the next 18 months. And I got to the point where I didn't have all my questions answered, but I could see that this person, Jesus, was real and authentic, and he offered me a clean start and forgiveness. And he was not only a brilliant uh, philosopher and, and logician, and, uh, but he was also beautiful and pure and um, could be trusted. And so I put my trust in him. I was 20, 
1920, halfway through this degree, and I continue to finish it. But, and interestingly, you know, that my newfound relationship with the creator of the natural world did not diminish my study of it. In fact, it blessed it, augmented it. You know, I was not only studying nature and learning these extraordinary mechanisms that could not uh, be here by chance, but also was in relationship with the one behind it. Wow. Yeah. As you experienced this, did your family notice a difference in you? Did you how, did, how did all of that go down? Yeah, so I, I spent uh, time, uh, you know, explaining to them. And I'd also become vegetarian at university Ouch. Which lasted a year, and my, I'm, I'm sure my parents thought, "Oh, she's gone to university, become vegetarian, she's become a Christian." Okay, I mean, let's just see how this plays out. I didn't stay vegetarian, but I am still a Christian, <laughs> and that's like 30 years later. Um, and I think I don't know. They may have thought it was just a phase, but of course to see it stand the test of time and to see it stand the test of time through quite a few valleys as well as uh, kind of hilltops or whatever. I I guess that itself says something. Um, And, you know, I would say that I am no less, I'm even more committed uh, to the person of Jesus Christ. I believe that you can, you know, you can grow in depth of relationship over time as well, can't you? Of course, you're saved fully and completely at the moment of decision, but that relationship grows and develops, and so I'm even more certain of mm-hmm. the reality of Jesus and the truth and power of the gospel than I am than I was in 1994. Wow. So you graduate from Bristol. You have your degree in biochemistry. Where did you go next? Well, uh, I actually went to Switzerland. Uh, I went to Basel uh, in Switzerland because I, I wanted to do a year in industry uh, as an intern. And so I ended up writing a ton of letters and I managed to get myself a job working for Novartis, pharmaceutical company. Novartis? Novartis. I've sued them a lot. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Go ahead. At the time I arrived there, it was Sando, and they merged with Sibagaygi while I was there to form Novartis, which at that point was the largest pharmaceutical in the world, I think. But um, so I was an intern there for a year. I learned to ski. I saw the Alps, which, by the way, if you haven't seen the Swiss Alps, oh my goodness, so much of God's creative beauty went into Switzerland. So definitely pay that a visit. That's considered the Lubbock of Europe. If you say so. (laughs) Um, So I went went there for a year. I learned about, um, they were using MRI to look at certain models of um, arthritis. And so I actually uh, asked their advice on where to apply for a PhD in in using uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And that took me to Cambridge to to do a PhD in functional MRI. Um, And so... Many of you might have had an MRI scan, you know, structurally to look at um, a shoulder or knee or, or back scan or brain scan, and that would be looking at the structure of that. And this technique is amazing because it, enab- it uses the water that's naturally present in your body to construct a 3D image. 
and you can do that without cutting into the body and that has meant that you know you can study healthy volunteers with no damage to them no radiation exposure um, no chemicals or anything needed so extraordinary and I use functional MRI which looks at brain function it's using the magnetic properties that are naturally present in your blood uh, to measure um, brain activity in response to particular exercises or tasks that you give someone to do while they're sitting in a scanner which is basically like a giant toilet roll um, that you sit in and have your brain scanned and I, I read somewhere it's probably been 10 or 15 years ago uh, it was in a, a neurology book on memory and learning and they said that since the advent of functional MRI machines, science had learned more about the brain work in the last 10 years than in the history of humanity up to that point. Wow. Is That's an extraordinary statement. I mean, what, 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 is, um, what it did enable was that you could suddenly study healthy volunteers, whereas in, in the kind of, you know, couple of centuries back you were limited if you wanted to study you know you were limited to post-mortem studies or people with uh, in disease states that were sufficiently desperate that they would let you kind of experiment on them you know and so but uh, with the advent of things like brain imaging and of course uh, some other techniques uh, earlier than that you could study in what was happening inside the brain in a healthy volunteer. And, of course, that would enable you to learn. So you get a Ph.D. from Cambridge University in brain imaging where you read these images of the brain. How is it that, well, first of all, what did you do with that? Did you at first pursue a career in that area? Yes, yeah, so I, I went on to, well, there was a brief uh, foray into pre- and post-surgical mapping just for a few months um, before I left Cambridge. I got married in Cambridge, my husband and I. Uh, he was a Baptist, but, you know, now we go to an Anglican church, that's all I'm saying. Um, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, I know that I'm in a Baptist church right now. That's so. okay. One God, one church. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, wonderful um, Christian man. And um, oh, what was I saying? I yeah, you digressed. You were you, you got all into the Baptist Anglican thing, and look yeah. where it took us. And, uh, yeah, all right, yeah. let's get no back good on. Can come no, of that. no. Yeah. Um, my, 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 what I wanted you to do is help us walk through where you went with your degree. Yes. What did you go so, into? So I, I, I then actually, um, we moved to the states. Having just got married, uh, we moved to Milwaukee, just an hour north of Chicago. My husband was, um, because we met in a brain imaging lab in this brain imaging lab in Cambridge, very romantic, yes. Um, and so my husband was working in MRI software engineering for GE Medical uh, in Milwaukee, <clears throat> Milwaukee suburbs, and I was working at the Medical College of Wisconsin, which was one of the labs where some of the foundational functional MRI studies came out in the late 80s and early 90s, showing how you can use these statistical methods and with the right experimental design can measure patterns of activity. So I got to do a, a postdoc position in the psychiatry department looking at human cocaine abuse. Uh, it was a, really, a department with a lot of infrastructure where we, and they had spent a long time getting studies ethically approved so they could study people who were currently uh, using cocaine 
to come in and participate in studies where we could look at, in real time, the effects of cocaine in their brains. Um, you, somewhere in the midst of all of this, develop a fascination with the difference between the brain and the mind. Yes. Uh, you talked about this last night. <clears throat> Before we get into understanding that, would you uh, explain to us how your interest in it came about? Absolutely. When I was in Milwaukee, uh, I met some wonderful people, wonderful Christian people. And one of those was a lady called Debbie. I just went to visit her in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and, and Mark, her husband. And I actually, my, my contact was first through um, realizing I, um, I was an evangelist uh, because I, uh, I saw uh, my friend Debbie uh, doing these kind of one-to-one -one Bible studies with all kinds of people who didn't know Jesus. So it was a six-week study, and uh, many of these people became Christians, and I was just fascinated by her life. And that, that took me into some really interesting conversations. And what, I, what happened was in this lab in Milwaukee, virtually everybody in the lab at, at some point over the three years that I was there, I was able to have conversations about Christ or respond to their questions. This raised the whole issue of, okay, how has God wired me? What, what am I supposed to do with my life? Um, I, I began to realize that even though I'd been a Christian for five or six years by that point, there were some gifts that had been dormant that were beginning to come to the surface. One was an evangelistic gift. And then another thing was this recognition of the need to be able to give credible reasons and have answers, this whole area of apologetics. And that took us back to Oxford in 2004, where I studied at Wycliffe Hall, um, which uh, was also where the beginnings of OCA, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, started. And in its first formal year, I studied theology and apologetics um, and evangelism. And, uh, and that, so that got me into the whole area and then a couple of years into that, I began to realize, well, I've got this neuroscience background. Questions of consciousness come up all the time. Maybe it's kind of fortuitous to kind of think about this, this area as well and to kind of draw on my background in this area. Now, I don't have your PowerPoint <coughs> from last night, which was splendid, I might add. So we're going to have to make do here. But um, if we've got a human being... This is how. Is that an anatomically correct human being? <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> and they got a brain right up in here. And that's the brain. <laughs> now, this anatomically limited human being with a brain is what all of us believe to be. But there's a question of whether or not that brain is the same thing as the mind. And I'd like you to frame that question for people. Absolutely. So 
those of you that have read kind of scientific journals or articles or popular level books might read you know, things that are essentially saying that because we know what's happening in the brain now, that explains everything about human beings. And you might even hear, there's this um, Netflix series called The Brain Game, and it talks about all these elements of human uh, capability. And it says, your brain does this and your brain does that. And at, but actually, the reality is we don't just have a brain, we have a mind, And it is not a foregone conclusion that the mind is the same thing as the brain. These two things are fundamentally different. Your brain uh, described, you know, is your neurons and all the chemicals and electrical activity, but your mind is the, the seat of your thoughts and feelings and emotions. There's something that it's like to be you uh, that actually just measuring the activity in your brain can't tell us. Um, and Philosophers talk about qualia all the time. So let me just maybe frame it a little bit more. Probably you had some coffee at the back uh, of the, the auditorium today. Uh, imagine I were to ask you to describe to me the smell of coffee in physical terms. If all you've got to work with is kind of the physical descriptions that people like to use in terms of brain activity. Well, you could describe to me the chemical structure of caffeine, but that doesn't get you any closer to the smell of coffee. Or you could describe to me the physiology as you uh, digest this coffee and drink it, but that doesn't get you any closer to the smell of coffee. If you want to understand the smell of coffee, you need to smell it. And there is actually no physical description that can get you to that. And this is an example of a quail that philosophers use that term, or qualia, which is a word to describe qualitative experiences that are impossible to describe physically. And life is full of these. In fact, we are encountering qualia all the time, even as we sit here now in this auditorium. Physical descriptions don't get you there. And for that reason, many agnostics and atheists even agree that actually trying to explain human consciousness, what it's like to be you in terms of physical descriptions is not going to get you there. It can't even be done. You need to frame it differently. All right. So you, I'm going to make sure we're all thinking through these terms carefully. Yeah. So the brain is the physical structure inside my skull. My yeah. brain. Yeah. I've got neural cells, glial cells. I've got this chemical soup in there uh, that's electrified, yeah. and and it's making connections, chemical connections, and synapses, and 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 you can measure electrical activity, and I can wear a skull cap, and you can see what parts of my brain are firing when I'm yes. doing this or that or the yes. other. Yeah. That's the physical structure. Yes. But in terms of this idea that we've got some identity, yes. some conscious awareness of who we are yes. beyond simply the brain chemistry that's going on, yes. that is consciousness, that is what we're calling mind. Yes, for the purposes of this conversation, con I mean, um, consciousness is a property of the mind, or the mind oh, is the bearer said. of consciousness. Yes, there's something that it is like to be you that simply measuring the activity in your brain doesn't capture. That's, uh, that's 
I have here a black crayon. And it will have an interaction with this paper if I draw on the paper. And there is actually a chemical reaction that's occurring here that's causing some of this waxy substance to adhere to this paper. Now, that's a physical process, a chemical physical process, uh, but it's not conscious. It's not thinking about, you, you don't have this black wax thinking, oh, I think I would like to go onto the white paper and make a nice arrow for the boys and girls who are watching. That, that's, there's no consciousness that we know of. Yes. So my brain may be doing all of these chemical reactions, yes. but that does not account for the fact that I'm able to sit here and think through and, and find essence, yes. conscious essence. Exactly. Brains don't think. People think using their brains. And um, what we see all the time is that the brain mediates conscious processes. And the scientists are reporting the kind of networks that correlate with whatever the mind is doing. But that is essentially what the, the science can tell you, that when you use your mind, there is a corresponding network in the brain. Now, the error that is often made... Uh, is to then say, well, mind must simply be brain. But that is not necessarily the case. The science tells you they're connected. It doesn't tell you about how they're connected. That's a philosophical question. And as you point out with your example, we have agency. You, You drew the arrow. Your brain didn't draw it. And so how is it that we have agency, that it's not simply our brain driving this thing? We choose it. And there are all kinds of philosophical models that you can look at to tell you about that. Um, One of the set of questions that we had last night that I did not ask you, but I put off uh, uh, wondering whether or not we would have a chance to get into it today, will cause me to digress for about three or four minutes. But then at the end of my digression, I want to bring it back to you and ask a question. Someone asked me last night about some terms that are used in the Bible. Um, There's the term spirit. There's the term soul. And there's the term body. And these are words in Greek. These are words in Hebrew. In Greek, spirit is pneuma. Soul is uh, psuche. And body is soma. And so we read these different words. And what someone was wanting you to do last night was to try and put these into, put these biblically used words into an understanding of where the brain is, where the mind is, and how they interact and where the, the God's spirit may be as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I didn't ask the question last night, and, and I wanted to wait and talk about it today so that last night was about her answers and not just what I would say, is these, these are words that uh, uh, Charles Mickey, David Capes, we've got a bunch of people who do Greek better than I do, but, but these are words that when I was young, 
I had all of these wonderful ways of seeing that these words interrelated. And each one had its own system and its own place. And, and I heard a preacher once do three concentric circles and talk about your spirit and your soul and, and use the Hebrew passage of piercing even to the division and, and all of this kind of stuff. Okay? And I was a, a law student at the time and I went back to Lubbock and I went to Charles Mickey, who was our uh, college minister at the time. I said, I really want to teach this stuff. And he said, um, I never want to inhibit you from teaching, but before you teach that stuff, you need to study it more. And I said, what do you mean? He says, those clean lines don't exist in the Greek. They don't exist in the biblical text. And I think you gave me a book by Jewett entitled Paul's Anthropological Terms, Charles. And it was a, a really good book, but I learned through study that the Bible uses these words sometimes interchangeably. And there's just not good, clean distinctions between them where you can say, oh, the brain is the body, but the soul is the mind and the spirit is the divine touch that invigorates the mind and the body and forms the union. I don't think that the Bible will allow you to use those words in such a clean fashion because I think biblically... We are a united whole. I think the idea that we are part body, you know, uh, we're, we're a soul imprisoned in a body. Um, and when we die, the body's gone and the soul just floats and exists for eternity. That's, that's very platonic. It's from Plato. It's not biblical. Biblically, we are all knit together in our mother's womb. We are body, soul, and spirit all as one. Now... I say all of that to, to bring this back to you. Um, there is, without a doubt, a connection between the mind and the brain. True? Yeah. And I think that because you studied cocaine use, mm -hmm. uh, I spent a lot of time with some of the, the medical scientists dealing with opioid addiction. Yeah. And how opioid addiction transforms the chemistry within the brain. The actual mechanical chemistry is transformed, <clears throat> but it does it in a way that clearly affects the mind also. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about the relationship between the brain and the mind in that way? Yes, absolutely. So... <clears throat> um, I think that the relationship that you just described works both ways. I think that when you um, chemically kind of introduce things into the brain that are not good for it, it, it obviously affects the mind. And there were other people in the research group that I was part of studying the cognitive effects of people uh, with, with cocaine addiction on their ability to, something like known as inhibitory control, in other words, have self-control and um, <clears throat> their memory and uh, other cognitive tasks. Um, but it's also true that um, the mind uh, 
can impact the brain um, and in very powerful ways. This is the basis of the placebo effect. If you are given a blank drug that you believe can help you, it will have some therapeutic benefit in your body. It's an example of the power of the mind to influence the body and brain. It's also the basis of um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and uh, sports psychology, we know that you know matches are lost and won, not just on the physical ability of the person, but on their, what is going on in their head. <laughs> Can they get their head together to finish this and see it through? And, and so we also know that the mind is powerful in its impact on the body and brain. And so it's kind of a, a two-way relationship. I would say. Yeah, uh, what occurred to me as you were speaking is I, I think most people who study understand alcoholism is a disease. Yes. Uh, alcoholism with some brains has altered brain chemistry in such a way that the pleasure-pain uh, equilibrium is off yes. and, and, and there is a true disease. Yes. And yet we see things like Alcoholics Anonymous work on the mind yes. in such a way that it's able to wean exactly. people away from the brain yes. running the mind. Exactly. I mean, I know that these, um, these kind of uh, situations are highly complex and are not straightforward. And there are stories of people um, kind of wrestling with these things for a lifetime. There are also stories of people that are um, kind of... Uh, able to be free from it uh, and kind of live in a new way. And, um, you know, another facet of the brain that's really important here is brain, is neuroplasticity. You know, um, historically, people thought the brain was incredibly rigid and static. And once you got beyond a certain age, probably 18 or so, maybe even younger, essentially your brain was fixed and determined for the rest of your life. But more recent studies have shown the brain to be incredibly plastic. In other words, it changes and molds and shapes and adapts throughout your life which means that if you don't use it, there's a price to pay. But if you do, and if you kind of, uh, you know, you can train your brain, you can in reinforce positive neural pathways or, even, or negative ones, depending on the, the choices that you make. But, you know, when it says in Romans that we, are, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that's in a sense the biblical basis for the you know, neuroplasticity. I mean, extraordinary thought to think about what happens in the brain when you're born again, you know. Um, because if, it, if, you know, we are holistic, physical and spiritual beings that when the Holy Spirit begins to work in someone's life, and this is another layer that we haven't, I mean, I'm sorry I got ahead of us a bit, haven't I? But We're going there right we're now. We're going then. there. Um, that actually um, it is possible for your brain and mind to be rewired. Now, I don't say that simplistically. I know that this is a journey. This is a wrestle. This is a spiritual battle. But this is possible, and there are stories from around the world of people who have been brought off very severe drug addiction in the power of the Holy Spirit. You could look at someone like Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong, the work that she did with opiate addicts and... Uh, there are many other stories. And of course, AA itself is, is built on the premise that there is a higher power. There is someone bigger than us 
to whom we can go to for help with these things. And so that's the wonderful thing that because God sits outside of the created order but has breathed it into being, that he is able to impact the physical world in ways that go way beyond what we can ask or imagine. And amen. And uh, amen. So I want to take us into that in a little more depth for a moment. And I want to explore it. So as Christians, we believe there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual world that God's spirit uh, uh, acts and, and interfaces, can indwell us, can transform us can convict us, can inspire us, can work through us. But we also understand that there are evil forces at work as well. So I'm curious, and you and I have never discussed this. So this is not, oh, I know where she's going. I want to pull this out of her. I got no clue what she's going to say to this. Hopefully but it I, won't be heretical. Yeah, Pray for me. Yeah, it could be horrible. But uh, <laughs> let's see where it goes. No, I'm really curious. Um, have you ever given thought to demon possession and to the ideas of the influence of evil uh, spiritually upon people and how it may affect their mind as well as their brain? Well, I just want to say this, that you are the third person in 10 days to ask me that question. And so... um, You've clearly been to Lubbock. (laughs) One of the people was in West Palm Beach, but, you know, just just putting it out there. It's basically Lubbock with the sand. They just added water. (laughs) I think it's a great question and it's something I'm going to ponder and think about even more um, in the coming weeks and months. But I think without a doubt we can say that there will be an impact. Um, I mean, I, I think I probably have come into contact with people that are demonized um, and there is something about their, their conscious awareness, um, their uh, uh, responsiveness to various stimuli in their environment that is not the same as somebody that is not not demonized and there would surely be an impact on memory and their mind and I think I don't know one thing that I could say at this at this point in general is that the difference between the way that the Holy Spirit works and the way that evil spirits work is that the Holy Spirit never takes you beyond where you're willing to go um, that we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives through co- professing faith in Jesus Christ and, and actually the Holy Spirit is never forced upon us. He cooperates with our will, which is why it's so important that there is such a thing as f- free will, that it's not simply your brain generating every thought and choice. That it, um, That's another reason why this is such a contested area because you choose to invite the Lord into your life. And it's you that chooses, not your brain. Um, But evil spirits seem to work in such a way that overrides your freedom of choice, that you may feel like you have an element of choice at certain parts, but it seems to not cooperate necessarily with what what you want, and which is why it leads to slavery. Um, But the good news is that Jesus 
has everything and has done everything. He has actually made a public spectacle of the powers and principalities and has triumphed over them by the cross. And so these things need not have a hold on us. uh, And uh, Jesus can deliver us from all evil, which is why we pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Wonderful. Um, If if we take this a little bit further, um, a lot of people struggle with uh, their mind. A lot of people experience the brain changing as they get older. Some of it Mm -hmm. maybe by what they're doing, but some of it perhaps just the decay of of this fallen world. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think many of us have friends or loved ones who have uh, slipped into the worlds of, of diminished capacity from Alzheimer's and, and uh, we found people whose brain as it changes in older age alters their personality, seems to alter their mind and their consciousness. Um, I heard someone say that if that the, the traits you have in middle age become greater in older age. So if you're uh, uh, unforgiving in middle age, you become a bitter old person. If you're angry in middle age, you become an angry old man. You know, you, 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 you seem to see those things intensify. Mm. Yet the Holy Spirit's at work yeah. transforming our mind, even if our brain seems to be deteriorating. Mm. How have you thought through those factors? Mm. Yeah, I think that um, clearly we come back to what the sciences are showing us, which is correlation. And most of the time, what's happening in the brain is correlated with what's happening in the mind and and vice versa, which means that, you know, um, when the brain deteriorates or simply ages, there is an impact on the mind. However, um, two things. Firstly, there is always hope with God that even if you are bitter in middle age, there's always hope to change that. It is never too late in Jesus Christ. And so in the natural, yeah, that's what happens. In, in Jesus, anything is possible. Amen. Um, and the second thing to say is that if we are more than just our brains, even if your brain deteriorates, there is still a you that exists. Uh, let me just tell you a story from my own family life that... My mother-in-law um, was diagnosed with vascular dementia about seven years ago, and she, she died in um, January of last year during, in Britain, the second lockdown. And, of course, during this time, the care homes were locked down, and it wasn't possible to go in. She was in a care home because her dementia was extremely advanced, and she wasn't safe at home. And so... Um, as we were planning her funeral, she lived several hours away from us, and she didn't live in the end where she had been based and where her church had been. And so we uh, were praying for the right minister to take the funeral. We wanted someone that had some sort of connection. And we found this lovely minister. <clears throat> so my husband started corresponding with him about um, details about his mum and her life and sent some photos. And the minister emailed back and said, you're not going to believe this, but I've actually met your mum. 
And it turns out that just before the pandemic hit, he had gone into the care home to take a communion service for a couple that used to be in his church. And um, Penny, my mother-in-law, was the only other person in the lounge at this point. And so they invite, they asked her, would she like to join them for this communion service? And she, she said, yes, yeah, she would like to. And so she sat and participated in this service. Now, what you need to know at this point was Penny no longer remembered that she had three children. She could not remember the names of her children. Her speech was incoherent most of the time. And yet here she was reciting parts of the communion service, praying the Lord's Prayer and connecting with the Lord, even despite having extremely advanced dementia. And I remember thinking, how kind of the Lord to let us know this. We would never have known that if we hadn't connected with this particular minister in this part of the country. And you see, if you are just your brain, when your brain deteriorates, whether that is from just general aging or from something more serious, you are gradually lost. But if God exists and there is more to you than just your brain, then even as your brain deteriorates, the you not only continues to exist, but is being renewed day by day. And one day will be fully restored. We read in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that the body raised will be imperishable. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in honor uh, and, and glory and power. Um, and so there is hope. There's hope for us all in this life and for the life to come. Amen. Um, Sharon, I can't um, improve on anything you just said. Uh, and um, I think that we're at a good point. We are about four minutes early, but I've got to go in and get ready to preach a big church. So I would appreciate your prayers um, and attendance. And, uh, um, but it, it makes me want to draw this to a close here in just a moment. So let me ask you one last thing. And that is if you were in, in Oxford today, instead of here, where would you and your family be going to church? I would be at St. Andrew's church in North Oxford. There's also one other person here, Stan, um, that goes to that church. Imagine the likelihood of that. So a wonderful um, evangelical Anglican church in Oxford. All right. Well, um, uh, please tell your husband and two children that we appreciate them loaning you out to us for this week. And would you join me in thanking Sharon Garrison? And let me say a blessing over class. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask your presence among us. We pray that you will be at work renewing our minds. We pray that you will transform us into being more like the image of your Son. We pray knowing the frailties of this world, but in, in full anticipation of the glories of the world to come. And we rest in you. We invite you into our lives to work, to minister, to convict, 
to teach, to instruct, to remind, to do all of the things, Father, to help us better live your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for sharing and we pray for your travel mercies on her returning back to her home. We pray your blessings on her family and on the ministry that you put on her life. Give her strength, give her courage, give her opportunity and work through her as you have today in our presence. We bless you, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.